0: The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the 6th chapter, beginning with the 14th verse. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. King Herod heard of the disciples' preaching, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, even half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? She replied, The head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the baptist on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb." The Gospel of the Lord. Praise 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 to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Won't you join me please in a word of prayer? Good and gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for this opportunity to worship you once again in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the gift of this fellowship of saints, the ability to lean on each other in our times of need. We lift Myron, to you now, specifically, ask that you would hold him close to you, that you would grant comfort to his wife, Sandy, his family, and all of us. Indeed, at this time, we lift to you all of the burdens of our hearts, uh, those things which weigh us down, those loved ones for whom we have special concern. Um, Grant us comfort, hope, and encouragement. Lift up our spirits when we are downcast. Now, Lord God, we ask that you would speak a word to us, a challenging and convicting word, a liberating word, a word of power, anointing, hope. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My sermon text for today is from the Old Testament lesson, actually, from the book of the prophet Amos, chapter 7, verses 7 through 15. It has been read in our presence. You can follow along in the bulletin there as well. Uh, My sermon title for today is based on two verses in the text, verses 7 and 8, when it mentions a plumb line. So my sermon title for today is A New Plumb Line. A New Plumb Line. The Hebrew Bible, what you and I often call the Old Testament, is commonly divided into three sections based on the genre or type of material found therein. You have the law, then the prophets, and then finally the writings. The middle section, the prophets, are subdivided into a couple of different categories in order to better understand them. The former and latter prophets, and then the major and minor prophets. The former prophets are simply those who came earlier in time, like Elijah and Elisha, and weren't writing prophets per se, that is, they didn't record their own material. The latter prophets, then are those who came later in time and were regarded as writing prophets, often recording their own words in books that bear their names. In the case of the latter prophets, this group is further subdivided into major and minor prophets. Such a designation does not reflect their importance, but rather the length of their books or works. The major prophets, therefore, are the very weighty and hefty books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. While the minor prophets are those brief 12 books which conclude the Old Testament and indeed are so brief as to be called sometimes simply the book of the 12. In order, their often exotic sounding names are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. The prophet Amos then whom we are encountering this morning is among the latter and the minor prophets. Amos is a famous, some would say infamous or notorious prophet, best known for his uncompromising, unsparing, unflinching message. He provokes controversy in powerful quarters with his scathing critique of Israelite society, primarily as it concerns social justice. He is identified humbly in the opening verse of this book as one who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Tekoa was a small village of Judah, some 10 miles south of Jerusalem, in the southern portion of the divided kingdom of God's people. He prophesied in the mid-700s B.C. when Jeroboam II was king of Israel in the north, where Amos prophesied, actually, and Uzziah was king of Judah in the south. The prophet Hosea would have been a contemporary of Amos's. One commentator remarks about Amos' prophesying that he had the difficult mission of preaching harsh words in a smooth season the difficult mission of preaching harsh words in a smooth season things were going well in the northern kingdom of Israel indeed you could say that they were at the height the apex the Zenith of their territorial expansion and national prosperity and when such is the case I would submit to you people have a tendency to not only get full of themselves but to get full of God, meaning you start interpreting good, easy, pleasant and prosperous times as a sign of God's favor, his blessing, the fact that he is rewarding you in some sense for your moral uprightness or at least your work ethic. One could be forgiven for thinking in such terms. Perhaps it is only natural, but Amos detects something far more sinister going on. He sees success and prosperity arising more from corruption and oppression than divine favor. His is an unwelcome intrusion into the conscience of the nation. He is a troublemaker, a rabble rouser, a pot stirrer. His words are not likely to come from the mouths of many preachers these days, or perhaps in any day or age. The Lord roars from Zion, his very first words record, and the top of Mount Carmel withers. God's people, chapter 2 relates, sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. They trample the poor in the dust and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel, Amos thunders in chapter 4. I will shake you like a sieve, God declares in chapter 9. Amos lambasts the people's Trampling on the poor, accepting bribes against the righteous, and turning aside the needy, and demands that instead they establish justice in the land. Woe to you, he says, who are at ease and feel secure woe to you who lie upon beds of ivory stretch yourselves out on couches eat lambs from the flock sing idle songs on the harp and drink wine mixed in bowls you anoint yourselves with the finest of oils but you are not grieved over the ruin of joseph the book arguably climaxes when he directly confronts the hypocrisy and the fraudulent nature of their worship of the lord when he relates this word from god i hate I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me all kinds of offerings, God says, I will not accept them, nor even look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, but instead let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In just a few sentences, Amos acknowledges much to our discomfort, that you can possess all the outer marks of religiosity and none of the inner truth or power. You can play and sing and dance and shout and preach and praise and give plenteous offerings and be just as unrighteous, just as cold and callous, hard-hearted and hateful and devoid of all justice as you could possibly be. You can honestly believe that you are heeding the first great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but stand in gross violation of the second, to love your neighbor as yourself, thereby nullifying the entire endeavor of being a believer and being found guilty of John's later indictment, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The people of God thought that their prosperity indicated God's favor and approval, while the prophet of God, Reminded them that their neglect of those who were poor and suffering offended the holy nature and the moral character of their mutual God. Chapters 1 and 2 of this work concern judgment on Israel's neighbors. Chapters 3 through 6 concern the same judgment against Israel herself. And chapters 7 through 9 are five distinct visions of Israel's coming doom. The first such vision is of locust, which is averted by God's mercy. The second such vision is of fire, which is again averted by God's mercy. The third vision is our text this morning concerning a plumb line, an instance in which judgment is no longer averted. Likewise for the fourth vision of a basket of ripe summer fruit, and for the fifth vision of exile and death. This vision of the plumb line, which we have before us this morning, Marks not only the final straw where God's judgment will inevitably arrive. See verse 8 where God says, I will never again pass them by. But also it occasions the formal official censure of the prophet. When the priest Amaziah tells Amos to hush up now. A temple functionary tells a shepherd to cease and desist. The appointed commands the anointed to put a lid on it this is what the lord god showed me verse 7 opens up the lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand and the lord said to me amos what do you see and i said a plumb line a plumb line my friends is a length of string or rope with some sort of weight normally lead attached to the end of it so that it hangs straight down and demonstrates a true vertical line that is crucial you see When constructing a building, a wall, a fence, anything that relies on a true vertical line for sound construction and calibration. Am I right about it, Mark? Thank thank you. That's years of studying this stuff. If you're building something that needs to be straight and it's not, I think you can imagine what happens over time. It can shift. It can sink. It can become out of alignment, off balance, and ultimately come tumbling down. You can imagine what it would look like to hang a plumb line, for example, beside the leaning tower of Pisa. It would reveal exactly how off-center, how off-kilter it really is. And the problem with 8th century B.C. Israel is the problem with much of 21st century A.D. America. We're not straight. We're off-center. We're off-kilter. We're out of balance. Our construction is shoddy, haphazard, not up to code. Our edifice is deficient. Our spirituality out of alignment. God's plumb line reveals us to be leaning perilously to the side. Jobs, careers, and vocations out of line with what God would have us doing. Personal relationships out of line with what God intended for us. Lives out of line with truth, behaviors out of line with holiness, ambitions out of line with humility, plans not trusting in the Lord with all thine heart, but rather leaning unto thine own understanding. God's plumb line measures for the fruit of the spirit, but instead you and I lean towards works of the flesh. God measures for sacrifice, But we lean towards greed. God measures for compassion and sympathy. But we lean towards hard-heartedness. God measures for faithfulness. But we lean toward worldly measures of success. God measures for love of neighbor. But we lean towards love of self. God measures for the lost. But we lean towards that which is already found. God measures for the last. But we lean towards the first. God measures for the poor and the oppressed, but we lean towards the rich and the famous. God measures for generous giving, but we lean toward hoarding and self-aggrandizement. God measures for gospel, but we lean towards the law. God measures for the cross, but we lean forward with the crowd and say, if you are the Christ, come down now from the cross so that we might believe. God measures for service, but we lean towards greatness. No wonder Amaziah complains to the king in verses 10 through 15. You can't run a temple or a church saying things like that. And when you're addressing an entire nation or the government that runs it as Amos is doing, it's not patriotic. Amos has conspired against you, Amaziah says to King Jeroboam. In the very center of the house of Israel, the land is not able to bear all his words. This will be like preaching these words of Amos at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Confronting the powers that be is never easy, my friends, and it seldom goes smoothly. When it's prophet versus king or priest, think of how it often ends. Jesus versus Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, and Pontius Pilate ends with Jesus on the cross. John the Baptist versus King Herod Antipas and Herodias ends with John's head on a platter. The Apostle Paul versus Kings and Queens, Felix and Drusilla, Festus, Agrippa and Bernice ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. The Apostle Peter versus the Roman Emperor Nero ends up with Peter crucified upside down. The prophet Jeremiah versus Kings Jehoiakim and Zedekiah ends with Jeremiah being barred from the temple, his scrolls burned and himself being dropped and abandoned down a deep well. The prophet elijah versus king ahab and queen jezebel ends with elijah fleeing for his life and asking god that he might die time fails to tell of those who have confronted unjust systems of power through the ages dietrich bonhoeffer nelson mandela martin luther king jr archbishop oscar romero of el salvador untold chinese dissidents just to name a few it is lonely and dangerous to confront an unjust system without official backing. Amos is banished from the hallowed halls of power, if not the literary pages of history, with the official dismissal of verse number 12. O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, it is a temple of the kingdom. Amos' response is a model of humility and truth and is arguably the most famous passage in this entire book. I am no prophet, he exclaims in verse 14, nor a prophet's son. I'm a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore trees. The Lord took me from following the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. He acknowledges that he has nothing but a calling. No official sponsorship or support. No official training or accreditation. Nothing but the fact that God spoke to him and commissioned him to go. Kind of like you. Kind of like us. No official training, endorsement, or sponsorship. Just a God who happens to be the God of the universe. The same God who spoke to a shepherd and a tree dresser 2,700 years ago from a small town you had never even heard of prior to this morning and the same call go prophesy to my people go be the conscience of this nation in all that you do in every encounter that you have let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream speak for those who cannot speak for themselves stand for those who cannot stand any longer. Open your mouth, as Proverbs 31 verse 9 says, and judge righteously. Maintain the rights of the poor and the needy. And do it with the knowledge of Proverbs 22 and 2. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. And seven chapters later, the poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. No doubt, your primary, if not only reluctance right now is that nagging internal question of perhaps honest humility, but which leads, unfortunately, to paralysis and fear. But who am I? But I'm here today to remind you that if Amos had said, Who am I? Amaziah never would have been challenged. Jeroboam never would have been warned. And the people of God never would have learned that they were out of line and off kilter. Without Isaiah saying, here I am, send me, you never would have heard of the wolf dwelling with the lamb or the leopard lying down with the kid. If Jeremiah had persisted in his protestations, I am too young. You never would have heard of the new covenant where God writes his laws in our hearts, forgives our sin, and remembers our iniquities no more. If Moses had persisted with, I'm too slow of speech reluctance, there never would have been a parting of the Red Sea, manna and quail from heaven, or water from a rock. If Esther had wilted in the face of Uncle Mordecai's admonition, who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. Haman would have won the day; the Jews would have been exterminated, and there would be no celebratory festival of Purim. If Joshua had persisted, but I'll never live up to Moses, the sun never would have stood still in the sky, nor the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. If Abraham and Sarah had persisted, we're 190 years old respectively, so there's no way we can conceive a pregnancy, there never would have been Isaac, the child of the promise. If Samuel continued to grieve over Saul, he never would have anointed David. If David had focused solely on his one little slingshot and five little stones, he never would have failed Goliath. If Mary persisted, how shall this be? For I am a virgin. She never would have birthed the Messiah. If Jesus only saw five loaves, two fish, and 5,000 people, folks would have gone home hungry. And if all Jesus saw was 12 followers who never quite got it, he could never have imagined over one-third of the earth's population confessing his name. And if all you see is your own sin, shortcoming or inadequacy, without acknowledging God's forgiveness and healing of all of it, you'll always be stuck at who am I and remain in the daily drudgery of your own personal tokoa. But if you hear and receive and believe and trust in God's word of grace and mercy and forgiveness, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood given for you and for all for the forgiveness of sin. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you hear those things and receive them and believe them and trust in them, you too can stand up like Amos. You too can speak out like Amos. You can speak truth to power, but do it in love. You can stand up for the right treatment of other people who are made in the image and likeness of God, just like you. Who are sinful and off-kilter, just like you. And whose sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, just like yours. You can stand up for true morality, noble character, and profound, authentic, and acceptable worship. Because the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that 750 years after Amos preached his vision of God's plumb line, God got himself a new plumb line. He discarded his Amos 7 plumb line for a new plumb line of Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. Rather than relying on us getting right with him, he decided to get right with us. Rather than employing standards of righteousness according to the law, he switched to standards of righteousness by grace and faith. His new plumb line, his new standard of measuring became Calvary, Golgotha. The cross, which was erected vertically in the ground and bore the weight of the world's sin upon the slight frame of one man, who loved and embraced and forgave everyone, especially those whom society had discarded and marginalized and cast out. He came to pay a debt he did not owe, one early church father said, because we owed a debt we could not pay. Scripture says that God made Jesus to be sin. Him who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So you didn't shift or change anything, my friends. God changed the way He looked at you. So what once was a plumb line that canceled you out with an X, now becomes a plumb line that saves you with the cross. God changed His perspective. God got Himself a new plumb line. And you, you got saved. You got reconciled. You got blessed and delivered such that your response as far as plumb lines go is Psalm 16. The lines, the lines, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. A new plumb line. A new plumb line. Amen.